I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to your own personal Beatles. My name is Jack Pelling and with me as always is Robin Allender. Hello. How's it going? Very good. Yes, we've uh, got a really fun episode coming this week, which we recorded in the flesh last week, mm. with Alistair McLean from one of my favourite bands, The Cleontel. And it was a it was a really good chat. I was a bit of a fanboy, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I thought you uh, we held it together very well. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. But it was great. I mean, he's got some really good Beatles stories about hearing the Beatles and the kind of yeah. Uh, and then the working in Abbey Road bit on the first album as well. Yeah, well, we won't we won't, we won't spoil, spoil the yeah. um, <laughs> surprise for that. But there's a fantastic little run-in with uh, some Beatles legends. Yeah, um, which is yeah, which is really great. He had a really brilliant way of talking about music and and sort of art in general, really. And yeah, because the Clientella is such an interesting band where they're kind of they're kind of they're sixties influence, but but the kind of it's kind of filtered through this nostalgic kind of uh, way of doing things and, mm. and so he's so interested in the ideas surrounding music and you know yeah a bit really interested in the songwriting element obviously as he's a fine songwriter but one of the yeah. books we talked about was Dominic Peddler's uh, songwriting secrets of the Beatles which mm. I've, I've really enjoyed dipping into um, I was actually just reading you know we've been going on a lot about the descending chord changes in this yeah yeah opening. there's a great bit in there where it points out one in um it won't be long, which is mm-hmm. you know on with the Beatles. The uh, since you left me, I'm so alone. I was listening to that um, after a few ales on Friday. Night, <laughs> that record, great song. Oh my god, it's good. It's, it's brilliant. so good. Yeah. But that's that's so sophisticated because you know my point. I, I suppose I've been making in this series is it's interesting to see how Lennon developed with those kind of chord changes, mm. but it's right there in the early ones as well. That's the kind of thing Dil- Dylan famously said this thing about the Beatles chords, they're outrageous. <laughs> yeah. And it was talking about things like that, you know. I mean, that's a very sort of girl groupy, almost verging into sort of doo woppy. Yeah, totally. Thing, isn't it? Yeah. The yeah. call and response and stuff is just so great. And the it's musicianship brilliant. on it, I mean, I just love it. I love yeah. that record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, we talk a little about, um, about yeah, songwriting in general and, mm. and what it's like, you know, being an, the Englishness that yeah. um, the clientele have and particularly a sort of suburban sensibility or a, um, out, you know, an outskirts of, of London sensibility, yeah. which is really interesting. Yeah, um, yeah, and there are definitely a lot of um, stuff in the clientele that remind me. I mean, I don't find anything sort of overtly Beatlesy in it, in, in those senses, but it reminds me a little bit more of... Um, you know, late sixties kinks and and the mm. more sort of pretty Nicky Hopkins era Stone stuff as well. Really. Yeah, true, and zombies um, as well. I think and zombies, zombies, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's just yeah, it's, in general, it's just a, a really fascinating chat. So I hope you yeah. enjoy it. We, it was one of those where we went for a couple of uh, young specials in the pub afterwards. <laughs> yeah, and, like I just well, I wish that um, conversation had 
been recorded too because it was just it was fascinating funny. the whole way. I, there was a great bit where he referred to a sort of very six music band as being ghastly, which is yeah. <laughs> we won't won't spill the beans, but it's very funny. But he told a great story about he went to university in Edinburgh and he joined the Beatles Society there. And for some reason, the local newspaper did a photo shoot of the Beatles <laughs> Society, which ended up just being him in the bedroom of the president of the Beatles Society, whose duvet cover was a Paul McCartney duvet yeah. cover. Apparently had very sort of... Um, Jed Maxwell. Jed from uh, <laughs> yeah. Partridge vibes. <laughs> but apparently he would go around in Edinburgh after that and people would just like point at him and laugh as being the, the yeah. Beatles fan. Hey, it's number one Beatles fan! <laughs> yeah. That was <laughs> great. That's brilliant. Yeah. He brought along his copy of Beatles Ballads and we were yeah. talking about that fantastic John Byrne cover and mm. we were talking about how... And he sent this after, after the interview as well, which is the... That it's a kind of misconception that it was going to be the White Album cover called, you know, the working title Doll's House. Someone pointed out on Twitter, it's a, it's a myth. The painting was originally intended to be the frontispiece for Alan Aldridge's 69 book, The Beatles' Illustrated Lyrics. Burns' image was eventually used on the Beatles' ballads. So there you go. I did not know that. Mm. Yeah, Facts. Um, <laughs> it's a shame that that's the, that, um, the fake news, because it was quite nice when I was seeing the original mock-up yeah. of the um, original White Album. But sadly, it's not true. Yeah, such a brilliant um, painting, though. And it does work with the White Album. It does seem to fit the mood of it. It's a yeah. brilliant painting. We'll post it on the social media we'll, if you haven't seen it. We will, it. yeah. And um, we've got a few photos of stuff we chatted about, so go to our Instagram, at Personal Beatles, if you want to see any of that sort of thing. Um, and you can follow us on, the, on all the other social media channels too. We're on Twitter and the Facebook and all of that stuff. Um, and, uh, yeah, we'll just dig into a couple of emails um, before we crack on, because we haven't done any for a couple of weeks. But following on... Um, from our conversation about uh, key changes mm. and uh, Penny Lane in particular. This one comes all the way from New Zealand Whoa. Uh, from a guy called Johnny Andrews. He says, hi, Jack, love the podcast. I'm a bit behind just listening to your episode with Jeremy Pritchard and your opening conversation with Robin about key changes got me thinking. Hate to be one of those guys who writes into a podcast to point something out. <laughs> Ugh. <laughs> hopefully this might spark some further discussion. One of you said that the Beatles don't usually go in for cheesy semitone key changes, a trope that is one of the travesties of pop music, if you <laughs> ask me. Uh, the only one I can think of is in the final verse of And I Love Her. The, three, the first three quarters of the song is in F-sharp major, and mm. that last verse goes up to G minor. Oh. It doesn't sound as obvious as when the likes of Westlife do it, <laughs> because I think it's masked by George's guitar solo, which climbs from one key to another. Anyway, I'd be keen to hear what you think. Um, yeah, that's very true. It's a very good spot. I mean... Yeah, it's not some, not one that I'd thought of, but yeah, it does do that because I remember it being very hard to play in my first ever uh, Beatles keyboard book yeah. um, when I, I was about eight it. years old. Wow, this is ringing bells as well because this was a... I, so I've got my Beatles for acoustic guitar book here, which, which is how I learned to mm. play the guitar, really, and fingerpick. But yeah, and I love her, so that's sort of F-sharp minor. And then the guitar solo, yeah, it goes up to G minor. That's really interesting, mm. isn't it? It's really interesting when a, a song changes key and it's in a minor key. Yeah, it's um, probably you get away with it a bit more than yeah. uh, the Backstreet, Backstreet Boys Westlife thing, I think. Um, and then the rest of the song is just in G minor. There's another verse afterwards. That's really interesting. But the thing is with the semitone key change, for all of the you know bad things about it, it does work. 
Yeah, totally. <laughs> I mean, it well, might, it's a cheap trick, but, it, you know. If you want to know uh, abs- an absolutely, incredibly brilliant key change, and you're not going to believe what I'm about to say, mm-hmm. <laughs> listen to The Riddle by Nick Kershaw. Oh, right, okay. It's amazing, the way okay. it's written. Because it's it goes, the last chorus is a semitone higher. But it mm. modulates in the middle eight. So by the time it comes out of the middle eight, it's in the higher key. But you don't actually notice the key change. Yeah. It's very clever. I mean, I've said it before, Nick Kershaw's a genius. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the other band that do it a lot and get away with it, Semitone, and also just going off into strange keys for no reason and then coming back is Weezer, Blue Album, Blue Album mm. Hero Weezer, where uh, they'll yeah. go into a guitar solo and it'll go up a tone. And then it'll yeah. come back down, or it'll just keep on. You know, I think Holiday's got quite a good cheesy key change, ah, okay. isn't it? I mean, um, um, but you gotta, you can't do it half-assed. If you're gonna yeah. do it, you gotta really go for it. <laughs> You've also got to keep doing it, like Stevie Wonder, Golden Lady. Doesn't that just keep going oh, up yeah. at the end? <laughs> and um, don't you worry about a thing. It's got a great. Ah, uh, yeah, well. yeah. And um, you know, so Scott Walker's uh, Seventh Seal. That's got a number yeah, of key yeah. changes. Um, so this is another one on a similar subject from Matthew Barker, uh, who says, Hi, Robin. Hi, lovely Robin and the lovelier Jack. <laughs> um, well, it's very nice. Not a competition. <laughs> <laughs> Your discussion about the key changes in Penny Lane put me in mind of Howard Goodall's excellent analysis of the song in his 21st century great series back in the mm, noughties. Yeah. I think I've seen little snippets of that on YouTube. Yeah, before. I remember seeing that. Yeah. Um, Goodall makes the observation that the chorus combination of a rising euphoric melody coupled with a key change down a tone gives the impression of a happy memory tinged with the melancholia of wistful nostalgia. Mm. Big fans of all that stuff on this podcast, as you know. (laughs) It is, on the surface, a happy song, but there is something subconsciously sad about it, and it's built into the modulation. McCartney probably didn't know he was using the tension between rising melody and falling harmony in such a sophisticated way, but the effect is to give the song an emotional depth that a simple upper tone key change that which a lesser musician might have employed would not have achieved. That, to me, and to Goodall, is the difference between talent and genius. Mm. Then, of course, the final key change gives us the euphoric, celebratory, cathartic, McCartney-ish moment, which we need to remind us that even though the past is eternally and irrevocably out of reach, everything is okay, really. Mm. Um, and then he sends a little link of that video, which is on YouTube, if you type in The Beatles and Musical Appreciation and Analysis by wow. Vicar of Dibley composer Howard Goodall, CBE, yeah. um, slash Blackadder slash all the other good stuff yeah. that he wrote. Um, keep up the excellent work, chaps. My Tuesdays are made brighter by your Beatlesy witterings. Oh, that's really nice. Thank you so much. Yeah. And Cheers, what a man. great, what a great way of writing musicologically about. I mean, it's so hard to do, but you know, Matthew there does it brilliantly. Talking yeah, he's about nailed how, that. Very eloquent. About you know, we can we can get lost in theory stuff. You know, I think sometimes the songwriting book we talked about mm. when he starts going on about plagal cadences, you're a bit like what. But, you know, when you're able to bring in the emotional side of it as well, which is obviously what the Beatles were doing, yeah. <laughs> then that's the, that's, the, that's the key, isn't it? Yeah, superb. So if you want to get on in touch with us and share an, um, anything that we've chatted about in the show or just your personal Beatles, you can go to personalbeatles.com forward slash contact or you can email me jack at homespunsounds.com. And so without further ado, here is Alistair McLean's Personal Beatles. Welcome to this week's Your Own Personal Beatles, and we're delighted to be joined by Alistair McLean from the Cleontel. Hello. 
Hello, thanks for having me. It's very nice for you to be here. And here's my my friend and colleague, Jack. <laughs> Hi, friend. <laughs> nice to be here, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, I've been saying clientele, but do you say clientele? I say clientele. Clientele. Mm. Yeah. Great. Cool. That's good. That's the first question. <laughs> <laughs> Can I go now? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Who's this clientele? Clientele? Americans, Ameri- too. Americans, Americans. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. It's a bit like apparel. Apparel. Mm. It's a cool name. Was it? Was it, have you had the name since right at the beginning? Yeah, yeah. Mm. We looked at. We didn't have Google in those days, so we just looked to sort of. There's. There used to be like encyclopedias of obscure bands, you know, that mm. you mm. buy in like compendium books. So we looked through them all, and we couldn't find. We could find one clientele that was misspelled with a double L. That was a jazz band okay. <laughs> from like the early sixties, I think. Yeah. Mm. So we thought we're probably safe. Um, but yeah, it just sounded a bit like the clique, a bit, a bit kind of like mod. Yeah, uh, and you know, a bit like the Clean, who are one of our favourite um, New Zealand bands on mm. Flying Nun mm. Records. So uh, yeah, it just came from that really. Right. Mm. It's better than the Beatles. Yeah. <laughs> don't have to try too hard. <laughs> What's um? I mean, for people who might not know your music, I mean, for me, it seems like there are bands who kind of have the '60s influences in terms of the way the songs sound or the way they write songs. I mean, you know, someone like Oasis or something. But you're clientele saying you seem to be a band well, like broadcast where it's sort of more like channeling the memory of those songs or it's about the nostalgia. Do you, do you think that's a kind of fair assessment or is it? Not? Probably is. I mean, you know, uh, when, um, when I was like the formative music when I was growing up, we was at a time when 1960s influences were really unfashionable. Mm. You know, people mm. would laugh at you for like in the Beach Boys. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, so it felt like more of a kind of a secret society almost yeah. to like that sort of music. And then, of course, with with Oasis, obviously everybody started to. But before then, it was like a little club with secret signals and things. Mm. And, and I like that kind of her, um, hermetic element of it, that mm. sort of feeling of, of being... Um, being doing something channeling something that had been forgotten or, or keeping the flame alive yeah. you know but then we found when we tried to record we couldn't play as well as 60s bands you know <laughs> because to make money in those days you got you, you would make money playing music like that so mm. all the best players started to do it whereas we were amateurs and so we got this crappy sort of tinny recording equipment and we managed to get a kind of an old weird sound with it Mm. that didn't sound like the 60s necessarily it kind of echoed it but it didn't it wasn't like a a, a, a slavish sort of tribute to no. it, you know mm. and that's when it got interesting for me because yeah. that was when we sort of broke away from just being a, a tribute band or, or a band like oasis you know yeah. it, it felt like more arty more more interesting like we were we were uncovering something that was more difficult to describe or explain. Mm. Mm. Yeah, totally. And so the, your first album, Suburban Light, then that was all recorded on eight-track cassette, was it, or just? On, yeah, yeah, it was. We all got we got like student loans, and uh, in those days, you went to university for free, so you mm. didn't need you could get one, but you didn't necessarily need one if you're middle class. So mm. we all put our student loans together, and we went down the local. Um, a music shop and bought like an eight track which is like two four tracks put mm. together yeah. and, and a bunch of tapes and, and some microphones really cheap microphones and, and then we just tried to record ourselves with it yeah that's so cool and and was it the, the case that you, you got signed and you tried to kind of re-record them and then discovered actually those demos for want of a better word are the best sounding completely and it was so dramatic i mean it wasn't just like people talk about getting demoitis where you only like 
the first demos, you know, you know, yeah. don't like, don't really like what the producer did, but for us it was so dramatic. Because remember, at this time, again, we were just coming out of this really grey area mm. of music where it was Radiohead therapy, those kind of bands, mm. you know, mm. and maybe some trip hop in the sides. Mm. And so everybody in all the studios we went to would just try and make us sound like Radiohead. Right. Would, they would just, it would just be a really saturated but grey sound, mm. like a yeah. bloody wet Monday morning, you know. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and we were just like. Had our head, had our heads in our hands because right. we, we wanted it to sound like Phil Spector or, mm. or George Martin or something, and, and and we couldn't even get a foot on that ladder. We, you know, mm. we just couldn't get anything to work, and we tried and we tried and we tried, and we almost gave up making music. So really? we, we just can't do this. Yeah. It's like, and then then our, then we listened back to the old demos and we thought, well, there's a quality here that like, it's not going to get played on Radio One because mm. it's too low five, but um, it's got some sort of quality that. That, that you can even if you, you can you can sort of look at it and say yeah this is actually quite objectively interesting in mm. some way and mm. different so let's just put that out yeah yeah you know and that's what we did it totally adds to it particularly you know I hope you don't mind talking about like your first album because you've done so many albums <laughs> no since no then. I, I don't at all. I don't <laughs> yeah. at all but there's bits where you can hear like um, you know there's a bit in the song Rain great name for a song by the way yeah <laughs> <laughs> where um, you know you can hear a bit of tape kind of noise in it and you yeah. can hear the kind of didn't you record the vocals through a guitar amp and stuff like that we and did like, yeah you yeah hear the hiss come and go and yeah and yeah like as we, we we there's a thing called a gate i guess you mm. guys probably know about it because you do a podcast where it chops out any extraneous sound in the background mm. so if you stop singing for a bit it just cuts it out yeah but we didn't have one so we had to move the fader up and down yeah. to do it you know just flick it back mm. and forth well and that is the yeah. that's the jeff emmerich style of it paperback writer isn't it, it probably the, is yeah you know mixing as a you have to play the song didn't you and yeah if you didn't get that mix right at the time you have to do it again yeah you know? and you do have to do it again <laughs> yeah. over and over and yeah. over yeah yeah, yeah. Funny yeah. enough, talking about uh, Jeff Emmerich, when we made our second record, it was made on a 16 track, which had had like twice as much hiss as the 8 track. Mm. Mm. And um, partly because it was like had a higher fidelity recording head, so it would capture a lot more like horrible noise mm. when you were trying to record a signal. And we took like the first, both those records got mastered at Abbey Road. Mm. And um, we went, so cool. I know, yeah. like we went into um, this must, I don't know when this would have been, about uh, 2002 maybe. We went into Abbey Road and the guy said, Oh my God, you know, like, <laughs> what have you, who recorded this? <laughs> oh yeah, me, sorry guys. Like, this is a single, right? This one's a single. And I'm like, Yeah, yeah, he's talking about this song, House on Fire. Well, it's got too much hiss on it. Like, you just can't release this. It's not going to go anywhere, mate. You know, it's uh, some people like this stuff. Personally, I think it's a load of old bollocks. Oh, you know? my God. And, and, I, and I was like, well, what? you know, like, be constructive. What yeah. do you want me to do mm. about it? I'm in here. It's mixed. Yeah. I like it. He goes, we're going to send it down to Jeff. And um, I said, who's Jeff? And he's like, oh, this guy, Jeff Emmerich. What? Oh. And I was like, well, what do you mean you're going to send it down to Jeff Emmerich? What's he, what's he got to do with it? <laughs> oh, he spends his time these days. He, he goes through like police recordings and de-hisses them. Wow. And, and so that the police can actually hear like, you know, what, what not, not that police. <laughs> <thing>. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> good idea though. Um, but 
Yeah, so so they can hear what the gangsters are saying in the in, from the from the wire type wow. hidden microphones. That's what he was doing yeah. at that time. He must have been quite so ancient. Gene Hackman in the, mm. the conversation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So so he 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 took his police forensic skills. To our mm. single, and really? yeah, yeah, That's and sent amazing. it back up again, again, just kind of, what are they doing, you know? But uh, yeah, so, amazing. yeah. Did you ever meet him? There? No, like, he, he was just like downstairs. Into... He got it sent as an electronic file, and it came mm. back up again. I mean, the guy took us to Studio Two. This guy Adam, mm. who was one of the engineers, and he gave us a tour around Studio Two, which is just incredible. Yeah. It's like yeah. going to a bloody church. Yeah, you know? yeah. But, we were lucky enough um, yeah. to go we last month. Yeah. Were you? Tour yeah. And, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we've said this on the podcast, but like going, standing at the top of the steps and the smell of it, you know, was amazing. It's got yeah. a school hall kind of feel. As well. Yeah. Mm. Ancient cigarettes and things. Yeah. 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 Just incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Because I don't know if it's still the same now, but when I went there, they hadn't changed it at all. They mm, just—it yeah. was all just as yeah. it was. Exactly. Yeah. The fact it survived the 80s is a miracle. Yes. Yeah. Mm. You know. Yeah. 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 That's, um, you know, it reminded me of, do you know Flying Saucer Attack? Yeah. Another great kind of lo-fi artist, for want of a better word. When he mm. got his label advance, he got um, a 16-track recorder. So as you said, like reduced his fidelity by half. <laughs> <laughs> and he bought the Guild guitar that Nick Drake plays on the cover of Brighter mm, Later, right. <laughs> that model. Mm. So it's like, <laughs> I like that combination of getting something ridiculously expensive, <laughs> but the fidelity of yeah. it being, com- you know, compromised to such a degree. That was great. Was that Matt Elliott? <laughs> Matt Elliott um, told me that. I can't remember the Flying Saucer Attack guy's name. Oh, I thought Matt was in Flying Saucer Attack. He I was, know, yeah, I, know, yeah. I know Matt quite well. Oh, yeah. do you? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I do as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. great. Yeah, he's a really good, good egg. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. Oh, cool. Um, so, yeah, what was the... So you talked a bit about being kind of into the 60s and the 80s, then, if that makes sense. You know, being into 60s yeah. music. In the 80s. Growing yeah. up in the yeah. 80s. So how were you listening to stuff? Was it the kind of tapes that coming out? Were you buying old vinyl? Or like? I wasn't buying anything because I was like six years old. Oh, I see. <laughs> Sorry. <yeah. laughs> Mate. I didn't think you were that old. Sorry. Um, no, um, I, I, looked, I looked through my dad's records and he bought Please Please Me. Mm. And I sort of put it on and I was like, this is all right, you know. And then a twist and shout came on and I just had like an out-of-body experience. I was like, Mm. this is just, I don't know what this is, who it is, but this is Mm. just like, this just, it was like everything suddenly changed colour. It became from black and white to colour when I heard that. Wow. And, and, you know, so I listened through it a bit more, the rest of the record. I started to read like Anna Go To Him and, you know, all the really, the beautiful songs of John just singing with that like lovely mournful kind of Mm. shouty voice, you know. Mm. And, um, but he hadn't got any others. I think he had like an EP from Help, like with that single that they they put out at the time of Help. So I didn't know anything else about the Beatles. Uh, And then I looked through a bit more and I found like the Beatles oldies but goldies. Mm. And, so that's got a bit more of the later stuff yeah but it's all jumbled up it's mm. just like it's kind of cack handed and there's a picture of a guy on the front yeah. with a Beatles haircut yeah. who looks like he's from like the 1920s like gangster movie he's got <laughs> yeah. he's wearing spats and like yeah. and there's people with an old car and you know but again I didn't know any better I didn't have a control experiment that was like you mm. know someone saying well actually the Beatles were this I was just like that's the Beatles yeah, you know yeah. they're, they're gangsters from the 1920s <laughs> yeah. and then you turn it over and there's like another picture of them and, and I know now it's from when they were in Japan mm. uh, and they're wearing kimonos mm. and they've got like a big jade teapot and an ashtray in the front 
And I'm just mm-hmm. like, well, obviously they were quite successful. And probably when people get successful, they buy an expensive teapot. <laughs> you know. That's the first thing you do. Yeah. But, yeah. but yeah, like obviously I love that. Eleanor Rigby was the same thing. When I heard Eleanor Rigby, it's like the world turned upside down for mm. me. And the, But the really, the really big one for me was... Uh, I went around my next door neighbor's house and his dad was much more of a hippie, uh, you know, and, and he was playing Strawberry Fields Forever and I didn't know it was the Beatles. I didn't know who mm. it was, what it was, when it was from. And it was just like, again, everything changed in that moment. It was like an out-body experience hearing that song for the wow. first time. Amazing. So, so yeah, it sort of became like almost a little cult. And talking to my friends at school, that I remember like 20th anniversary of Sgt. Pepper, they put out All You Need Is Love as a single and there's a picture of them with all their like feathers and furs and I remember just mm. going in with all these guys with like flat tops from my class and they were like who would buy a thing like that who would want to look like that <laughs> bloody hell look at the state of him you know mm. and I was just going yeah yeah look at that eh? you know <laughs> <laughs> actually yeah. thinking I'd really like to they did a song called All You Need Is Love so it was a case of like kind of almost secretly learning and mm. slowly learning about mm. them in a, in a kind of a weird way. And yeah. I could talk about this all night. I won't bore you about it. But, oh, you know, no, things like the Beatles ballads. Mm. I mean, like I've got it with me. because I thought it would I mean, the, the cover of Beatles ballads is yeah. the kind of rejected White Album cover by John Byrne, isn't it? Which is so amazing. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's what they say. But actually, I found out on Twitter the other day that's not true. Really? It, it was not rejected for White Album. It, it was... Um, I think he put it forward for something else. The details escape me now, but, okay. but yeah, I was corrected by someone oh, on Twitter. Oh, really? Because like yeah, you tweeted the other day, yeah. I think, because it was the original Doll's House cover, but right. that's been an internet fabrication. Is it really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. so yeah. what was it for then? He just did well, it for fun? No, he, <laughs> he did it for another record of theirs. I think it was a kind of a cut-rate compilation, not this cut-rate compilation, but mm. a cut-rate compilation. Mm. Um, in the 60s and then it just got reused I guess this would have been what this was like early 80s uh, but just like and that's when I was like right that is the Beatles look mm. at them you know with the tigers and the animals around them and like you know Yoko in the glass yeah. and John mm. looking like a sailor and Ringo looking like I don't know what it's got yeah. the real quality. What was it's that? It's very f- like that book that a lot of people have cited as an early formative Beatles um, bit of paraphernalia, which was the the guitar or the piano music. Oh yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Weird Dali illustrations. It's very in that kind of vein. Where it, it looks yeah. like hidden a, Easter eggs in it. What yeah. was that book where there was a kind of it was a kid's book, but there was a hidden bit of treasure and the book. Treasure Island? No. <laughs> there it? was hidden treasure. At the author had actually... Oh, yeah, ma- Masquerade. Oh. Masquerade. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's very like that, isn't it? It's got that yeah. quality. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What have we got on this uh, record? I've, I'm not familiar with this one. Uh, it's, um, when they say ballads, they mean usually slow ones. And again, yeah. it's just thrown, everything thrown mm. in together year by year, you know. And But there's more from the kind of like mid mid 60s 67 periods mm. like nowhere man and um <laughs> all you know. my loving that famous ballad yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's got a nice picture from the mad day out and um, here yeah, well. yeah 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 it's an odd like the other one obviously is like the rock and roll compilation yeah which I think we have also oh amazing yeah. and that's a mad because that's got Taxman on it which like i wouldn't really well, think that was one actually yeah yeah Taxman. yeah i wouldn't really think of that as being a rock and roll song you know what I mean no not really I yeah. mean I've got the version up there that's volume one and two okay. which yeah. is yeah. them in yeah. a it's like a sort of happy days style yeah. like 1950s <laughs> drinking milkshakes yeah. in a diner yeah. Yeah. which yeah. is where yeah. for ages I thought because that was one of the first ones that my parents had and I yeah. thought they must have been from 
the 50s or the, as I knew it, the era when Greece was set, when I yeah. found out yeah. that Greece, the 70s wasn't the 50s. Yeah, which yeah. Which is also very confusing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ringo sort yeah. of said, like, he hated the cover because it's, why is it the 50s with the 60s? You know? Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. bizarre, yeah. isn't it? Oh, but, um, yeah, this was in that, in that sort of period where they'd lost control of the rights to reissue stuff, really, wasn't it? Clearly, So yeah. there was just, <laughs> every, everyone was trying to make a quick buck. Please yeah. tell me Volume 1 has funny. rock and roll music on it. I'm sure it does. Oh, yeah, it does. I think it starts <laughs> with rock and roll <laughs> okay, music yeah. and then it's rollover, Beethoven. Oh, yeah, yeah. But weirdly, I mean, I don't think a lot of those tracks are on there. I might be. I might be it's kind of weird. It's got Helter Skelter on there, which yeah. I wouldn't yeah. call yeah. rock and roll. Anytime at all. Yeah. Drive My Car is more funky than Rocky. Yeah, you know? yeah. Mm. But it's such a strange artifact. You yeah. know, like the cover is just got, it's like someone's taken a scalpel and <laughs> kind of cut around their hair <laughs> yeah. and, and, and glued it on. And then, yeah, it's like a, it's like a 50s, like tiki mm. bar font, isn't it? And again, it's just like, what, what is this? Where does it come from? What's it about? You know, mm. um, and comparing it to the other stuff as well. So you just got such a weird, like skewed view of yeah. who they were and what they were um, <laughs> at that time. It, it almost felt as if the, the narrative hadn't solidified yet. Yeah. Mm. You yeah, know, yeah. and you see that happening as well when, you know, you probably know that, I don't remember, was it Wogan where George Harrison and Ringo Starr came on and took in uh, in 88 or something and talking about you know the old days and talking about mm. jo- George's how George was young people now were seeing him and they didn't even remember he's in the Beatles they were like oh you're George yeah. Harrison mm. I've got my mind set on you mm. you know <laughs> and um, and that was a really awkward interview I thought well, like, I think they were suing each other at the time <laughs> oh, were they, <laughs> I Ringo, think they Ringo even made struck. a joke about yeah. it did like, they yeah. you know are we overall the suing it's yeah. like, <laughs> actually suing him at the moment <laughs> <laughs> he sued me yesterday <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah but I suppose it's like we hadn't in the 80s hadn't had time to digest it all and it was still it's weird because even in the 80s people were talking about the 60s as a very separate era which we wouldn't do now about something 20 years ago 20 years ago now feels very almost exactly the same maybe with a slightly different style of jeans or something <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but like we, in, you know there's that going on I think that we hadn't quite digested it but it did still seem like a very separate time 60s and 70s which Mm. you know like i think when when did the sort of kind of rubbish about decade taste forgot about the 70s start coming around was that do you think 80s i mean i remember that being said more about the 80s right 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 yeah but i guess yeah i think the sort of the way that you look back on that is the same sort of period, but just shifted on how, mm. how old you are. Yeah. So it might be to us that, you know, 2001 mm. doesn't seem like any radically different no. from today, but that's also because of the age that we are. Yeah, I'm true. sure if you are someone true. who was 20, they'd be like, yeah. oh my God, they had Tamagotchis or whatever it was. But it's weird to think, about, as you said, like the Beatles being unfashionable. I mean, we live in such a kind of Beatle-saturated age now. Yeah. <laughs> but like, what would, but like, there were obviously bands that were influencers on you, um, which had a Beatles influence. So I, do you think, so like someone like Felt or something like that, did you think, could you hear that Beatles kind of, you know, that kind of like almost cult-like thing through bands like that, or is it not really? Uh, do you think Felt were influenced by the Beatles? I don't know whether Lawrence would agree with that. Mm, I mean, oh really? I'd say probably more, I can hear more Dylan in them than, right, than yeah. the mm. Beatles, but um, but, uh, but as Felt aside, definitely though, you know, you, you could hear, 
see for me it wasn't the Beatles it was everything it was like the mm. monkeys mm. TV mm. show was on the telly yeah that was part of the same thing you know um it was like you could find traces of it in the charity shops still yeah, yeah. Uh, things from that time even if it was like I don't know something stupid like an old sewing machine or something mm. you know you could mm. find traces everywhere there was people who remembered it just like in the 60s there would have been people who remembered the trial of Oscar Wilde you know mm. and um so when I went to university in Edinburgh, I found more, many more people were kind of clued into that sort of thing. And that, that was more of a scene. And then they started to say, well, you should listen to, you like the Zombies' first few singles, you should listen to Odyssey and Oracle by the Zombies. And I'd be like, well, that just sounds like a hippie record. I don't want to hear that. <laughs> and then I heard it and I was like, oh my God, this is brilliant. Yeah, yeah. You know? So um, that, I suppose it's probably not coincidental that that started to happen just at the same time that the view of the 60s that we know now mm. solidified. Yeah, And, and yeah, like yeah. then the teenage fan clubs came along right. and then the the Oasis or whatever, you know. Mm, mm. Um, but I actually think now the, the 60s is getting a bit threadbare. I don't know how much longer people are going to be celebrating <laughs> it for. Well, it's yeah. almost mm. becoming too far in the past, isn't it? Yeah. It's, like it's mm, almost yeah. too removed. Yeah. Right, with, you know. Yeah, it's kind of strange to think about I mean, this is quite a morbid thought, but the kind of, <laughs> but you know, the way like we've lived through the last survivors of the First World War and the Second, and now the Second World War. It's kind of strange to think about that. Like people won't even be alive who are in the sixties at some point. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, you know. We're, you know, uh, I hope it, hope it doesn't happen anytime soon. But yeah, all the Beatles being a thing of the past mm. is you can't be more than ten years away. Yeah, you know. Yeah. And then not not a jolly yes. thought. I mean, the stones will probably still be <laughs> plugging away. <laughs> yeah. But um, mm. no, no, it's strange now to see sort of '90s culture being sort of mm. you know resurrected in fashion of young yeah. people now because um, yeah, that's another thing that sort of made me realise that oh, actually things were very very, very different, different. You know, yeah. Yeah. some people dressing like Britney Spears and like why are they dressing like Britney Spears? Yeah. She got a number one at the moment. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bands like Felt and Field Mice, were they kind of a big influence on clientele or was that not really? Felt definitely were. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, um, we, we were aware of them at the time. And again, mm. that was, they only ever sold like, I don't know how many thousand records, but it was in the tens of thousands. Mm. And, uh, but, but yeah, we all knew about them at our sixth form and mm. we really liked them. And I think we were trying to go and see them, but you know, I mean, they never played in a place that our mums would let us go to. You know? <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I re really loved them, and that stayed with me definitely. A lot cool. of that, a lot of that music sounds cheap and tinny now. Do you right. know what I mean? Yeah, but yeah. I don't think they do. I think they've they've stayed the course. Yeah, that. totally. And it's yeah, it's weird as, as well now, similar to what we're talking about in the '60s. When you hear felt stuff, it sounds so of its time. I wonder how it sounded kind of at the time you know i don't think people understood it yeah. i think i mean i think people just were like they didn't really get what he was trying to do mm. and, and i think he was really ahead of his time bless him because mm. there's a lot of bands a lot of bands that people say sound like us mm. i think sound like felt right. if i listen to real estate mm. i don't i don't hear the clientele at all mm. although mm. everyone else says it but i hear felt yeah. uh, very much more mm. you know um felt had a, a, a simpler harmonic chord than the clientele yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but had perhaps more variety of textures and and yeah, yeah I definitely hear that in in those bands yeah. more than us. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 
I've, I've always confused by Lawrence's uh, move, what he did in the '90s with denim because it was so different. I didn't. Yeah. I mean, just as someone who I guess was a fan, what was he? What was he trying to do with denim? I don't have the faintest <laughs> idea. <laughs> because it was sudden. All of a sudden, the songs were kind of much more satirical. I suppose they always were humorous and stuff, maybe, but. But like you know, songs about pub rock and stuff like Synthesizers that. Synthesizers in the rain. And yeah, yeah. What's your name? Oh yeah, that's mine too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the glam rock. Uh, yeah. What is it? Pub rock over the ocean. Yeah, that's yeah a great yeah. song. But no. yeah, just kind of fascinating figure, really. Isn't yeah, it? I can't speak for him, but mm. I mean, I know that. Uh, I mean, now I know a lot of people from art school who really like Lawrence. Quite young people, actually. Mm. Um, and I think the reason they like him is why the reason anyone in art school likes anyone is that they don't understand it. Right. It's completely mm. enigmatic and mm. amb- ambiguous. There's no way into it. There's no way to understand it. There's no, and they love that. It's like mm. you know, L'Autremont or someone like that, mm. you know, some French decadent poet. Yeah. Like, what was he doing? We don't know. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's the key to the fascination. But I, I got off the bus after felt myself. I can't, you know, I, I, I love those, love to listen to those records now and then, but I'm not a fan really. Well, okay, yeah. right. But that's a great way of describing stuff. Do you, and do you think that, I mean, when you talked about that kind of revelatory experience of Strawberry Fields, do you think there's something in that, like that you can't get to the bottom of it? That's why it's so good. You know? Maybe, but I think it's uh, more powerful by a, a, a power of a hundred. You know, mm. it was more like just an explosion going off in your head. There's not an intellectual, mm. there is obviously an intellectual aspect to it that you can, you can analyse it and people do, but mm. it's that first, that beauty of pop music, that's that first... 10 or 5 seconds something explodes in your head it's mm. instantaneous but it's also profoundly beautiful yeah. and mm. um you know that that for me is what pop music is all about mm. i think uh, the thing i always say about strawberry fields is like whenever i've tried to sit down work out the chords play along with it or whatever or listen to how it's structured you know on that technical sev- level where it's like how is this a verse where's the chorus stuff like that i always forget I'm doing that. And then the song ends. It's like, oh, I've just listened to Strawberry Fields. <laughs> you know, I just get, every time, you just get hypnotised by it, I think. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, and so many, there are so many aspects to it to be hypnotised by. You'd think one of them would have failed, but none of them did. Even yeah. George's little guitar solo at the yeah, end is the sound of a guitar through a Fender amp mm. with a beautiful valve reverb on it. And you just think, God, if I could get that sound. <laughs> yeah. And it's like two seconds and he probably yeah. just did it and then went to, went home and went out for curry or something. Yeah, you know? I know. yeah. But yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, like there's this guy, Paul Kelly. I don't know if you know him, he's a filmmaker. And he told me he's not religious, but if he was religious, he, his religion would be the Beatles because mm. every time they fucking rolled the dice, they got two sixes, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, until they didn't anymore, which yeah. is fair enough, mm, but they had a good yeah. run, you know. Uh, but yeah, it's like everything was a perfect success. Mm, it was yeah. the biggest success you could have possibly had, yeah. you know, and they kept on doing more and they kept on getting better and better. Mm, yeah. uh, you know, it's, it's genuinely extraordinary. It's like Rick Rubin says that that's what makes him believe in God is the Beatles, mm. you know, because it's almost ungraspable how, how good it is, mm. uh, you know, um, how, how just how successful they were. It's almost hard to get your head around it or understand or find a way in, mm. you know. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And that song, especially because there's just so much luck involved mm. in yeah. the way that it's all mm. it's such a frankenstein's monster of yeah. you know different approaches to the same thing none of which john was ever really happy with yeah yeah and the amount of you know poking around and that that moment at the end which is amazing 
it's just that's like one extra bit of take that they were just like, well, we gotta have find a way to mm. put this in. Yeah, and then they just fade it down and fade up another take. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, you yeah, can't yeah. do that, can yeah. you? Yeah, Surely, yeah. and yeah. it all comes together. It's this like cohesive thing. Which is, yeah, you know, that's more yeah. than luck. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, there's and, something going on that we don't really even have a name for. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. And part of its charm as well is that kind of the fact there's so much various speed and, you know, so much, I guess, bouncing down. There's so much, such a tapey sound to it, I think, that's mm. so warm and pleasant. And I mean, I think that's something we, we've into. Do you know Benoit Piolard? Like, he, he does kind of a lot of ambient music, quite lo fi stuff. But we talked about that as being whether it's an influence on what we like about that lo-fi sound in terms of tape hiss or just the saturated sounds of stuff like that i think there's definitely something of that in strawberry field mm. for sure yeah because those recordings you think of them as being really good recordings but they don't actually sound like the sound of someone playing a guitar in a room no they add something to it you know it's not transparent it's not a mimetic uh, representation of how a, an electric guitar or a drum kit or whatever sounds it's it's it we think it is because our ears play tricks on us because mm. that's the foundational music. But actually, I could imagine if you were a good musician in, in that era, you, you could become very, very frustrated with the limitations of, of the recording yeah. uh, techniques. Yeah. And they know. were, weren't mm. they? Yeah. Constantly yeah. asking, like, yeah. why can't we have 16 tracks? Why can't we have 32 tracks? <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's yeah. like, I think with John's voice especially is you know when it's really manipulated mm. it's kind of a blessing that we've never seen him you know he's not going around touring now but singing like there's no footage of him ever singing Strawberry Fields live mm. yeah. after that and if you did hear it live mm. it just wouldn't sound right no yeah, because yeah. so much of it is in that kind of weird drunk like semi-drunk draw yeah, of yeah. it being sped up so, or so you, know, or yeah. the, you know covered in slapback and, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I was going to ask because one of the things you mentioned in the emails we were exchanging before was this book, the, the Songwriting Secrets of the Beatles, by Dominic Pedler. And, yeah. Uh, I, well, yeah, it's really interesting because um, I, I sort of dipped into it myself. It came out in two thousand three, and it feels very like post-revolution in the head, and it's a very obviously musicological look at the Beatles but like why, why is that do you what, what is it about that book that you find kind of interesting well I'd always found like because I come from a classical guitar background oh, right? right so yeah. so I come from a, a classical music background really that's what that's what I learned when I was younger mm. and um was this your music teacher who was on Bake Off last year uh, no <laughs> no 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 this was a long time before oh, okay. that yeah. yeah yeah this was like when I was like seven or eight you oh know? I see right. um and uh so I wanted to play, I was into like Beatles oldies, but goldies or whatever. I wanted to play like George Harrison and, you know, the teacher was like, well, no, you, you can do that in your spare time, but this is real music, you know, and he'd <laughs> teach me like tangos or, mm. or, or pavans or whatever. And, um, and I still wanted to play like George Harrison, but I started to like, start liking that other kind of Spanish music as well. Mm. Um, and um, slowly but surely... I learned like classical music. So then I, then I would pick up the guitar as a bit older and try and jam out like or work out how be a Beatles song. And I couldn't. I was like, mm. what, what were they doing? Maybe it was because of the very speed, put it in a funny key. Oh, yeah. Or maybe it was the chord voicings. I just couldn't. I could sort of get the basics, but I couldn't actually play it like them. Mm. And um, this book 
really um, elucidates why that was mm. because it talks about well, the way that they learnt and the way that they played. And it's none of the like John, John, what was in, you know, he was, he wanted to compete with Paul, so he did this or he did that. It's more like, well, they, Paul played an A. Um, root note on the bass when John was playing an E chord mm. and then and there's a bit that's a really good mm. quote from Paul going well I just did it so that everyone would think when's he going to stop playing that note <laughs> <laughs> but that's a great uh, that's brilliant isn't it I mean yeah. there's a great uh, Jim O'Rourke quote about music where he, he says he wants someone to do something so often you question why they're doing it yeah. you know I think that's yeah. brilliant yeah uh, you know yeah. but yeah that's so cool and I think it, it's really good because you kind of find yourself torn when you're reading that book between thinking like, well, the did they know they were doing this? Could, how, how often can you say they're using an Andal Andalusian cadence or whatever it might be, you know? Um, but they, they didn't go like, right, I'm going to write a song with an Andalusian cadence, you know? But it's weird. It's kind of, it's this grey area between they obviously did know, subconsciously know theory and they obviously knew certain chords that sounded nice and they also knew that about expectation, like if you're doing this descending chord or whatever, Penny Lane say it would be really surprising to go to this minor chord here or something. Yeah. So th it's all that kind of, you know, unconscious knowledge, which is what makes the Beatles. Music yeah, so good, it's right? again, there's no word for it. There's no mm. explanation for it. The the level of sophistication and complexity that that they achieved without actually kn knowing in inverted commas what they were doing. Mm. Is, is all written down in that book. Yeah. And the thing, the key thing that really struck, struck me when I read that book was how often in their songs the melody doesn't contain any notes from the chord that's behind it. Right. So, so you know, when you write a song in G, you generally are singing a B, a G, a D, or, mm. or, or, or maybe a C natural. But quite often they weren't. And, mm. um, and, and I think that's partly what makes their melody so... Um, you know, novel all the time. Mm, so mm. interesting because mm. they, you can't predict what they're going to do the first time you hear it. And then mm. it's still kind of like doesn't, it sounds right, but it sounds like no, like right in a way that no one else is right. Yeah. Better yeah. than anyone, yeah. what anyone else does. And, yeah. and, and I think it's interesting that book. I don't, I'm, I, I don't want to go into musicological stuff because I don't really understand that much of it myself. <laughs> yeah. well, Music theory, but, yeah. mm. but there is, there is a sort of like a, a quite a mathematical approach he takes where he, it, it does uncover a little bit of the mystery of what mm. the effect is, yeah, you know, yeah. because mm. it's, it's very unlike um, anything that went before. Mm. Um, and what, but it also is completely based on every, anything that yeah. went before. Again, it's just head breaking. It's yeah, like, yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's that's interesting. A, that's a great, again, to go back to Strawberry Fields, I always think if you try and sing Strawberry Fields, Strawberry Fields, nothing is real. It's so hard to sing that bit yeah. without having the backing. And even when you yeah. play the chord, it's like the notes, as you say, aren't in that chord. Yeah, it's like a weird D diminished chord, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. And yeah, that's but he sings it so strongly yes, at the same exactly. time. I yeah. mean, it's so incisive and so kind of like strong and clear and you know, mm. there's no ambiguity about where he's taking you, you know. Mm. But at the same time, he's taking, taking you somewhere you that the, yeah. the yeah. walls and the floor just fall apart <laughs> yeah. around you, yeah. you know. Totally. And they, yeah. Well, they never sound like happy accidents, which no. I think no. is yeah. And Paul's version of that is, you know, in his just how perfectly everything fits together like Tetris blocks mm. even though mm -hmm. yeah the melody I mean something like yesterday mm. with where you know the we all know the, the the origin story but even to wake up sort of whistling that yeah it's quite hard to whistle 
Yeah, and I mean, it doesn't, I'm not you know, he must have had the whole harmonic yeah. thing in his head rather yeah. than, just you know, tune. playing it down by, like, I woke up with a little tune in my head. Mm, it's mm. like, no, it's all those, like, suspensions and mm. the fact that it ends on basically, like, the second inversion of a chord which resolves down to the same chord. Mm. It's really, you know, it's kind of yeah. very weird. You, mm. Can't, mm. you know, I don't think you can deliberately... It has to come from somewhere yeah. a bit other... Yeah, I mean, we, we, I remember talking about that song, the Bake Off guy you were talking about, who was our music teacher, sitting in the classroom and we had all the chords to yesterday and he was like, try and sing the why she had to go bit. Mm. And everyone was just caterwauling. They couldn't get the note. Yeah. You had to be like, you have to be like a really good singer to, yeah, yeah, to yeah. be able to navigate your way through that melody and the harmony of the chords underneath. I certainly can't, mm. you know. Um, and uh, yeah, it was really interesting. It's like, everyone knows that song. It's in your head, right? You, yeah. It's just an instinctive melody, yeah. but yet you can't sing it. Mm. Again, yeah. it's just like so mysterious, yeah. you know? Yeah. There's always one in my first ever Beatles guitar book that I always gave up with at that bit because <laughs> it changes in the sort of tabbed version. Right. It changes chord on every single note. Yeah, which it doesn't yeah. really like. That's yeah, not how it's written, but it's like, oh, I'm not prepared to play this. But when you watch him playing it, and he's only recorded it a couple of, mm. and in the the bootle- in the anthology version where you hear him play it for the first time, mm. it's like, you do you completely get why he would be like, I didn't, I can't have written this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. it's uncanny, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's literally uncanny, and I and I use the word literally in a non-millennial sense. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. It, 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 there's no other word for it. Yeah. it. It's just really, really weird. Yeah. yeah. You know? Yeah. 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 It doesn't get as much love as well. If that was a John yeah. song, it would be right up there as, yeah. you know, we'd be hearing that a lot more than Imagine, I would think. I think, well, was, do you think John was jealous of it or do you think he thought it was, you know, a granny song or something? Or? Well, he says in and How Do You Sleep, he says the only thing you wrote was oh, yesterday yeah, and yeah. you probably nicked it anyway or something, oh, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. You know the really weird thing? Have you heard the Bob Dylan version of Yesterday? Oh, it, yeah. It, uh, yeah. I mean, it came out... The, a session he did with George Harrison came out um, the other month and he did a he did a version of Yesterday yes, with George. Yes, I have heard it, actually. And, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. And he sings it really well, actually. And George mm. does a little solo in it. Is it during well, yeah. his sort of yeah, weird phase? It's, it's, <laughs> it's Nashville Skyline. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Suddenly... I'm not half the man I used to be There's a shadow hanging over me Oh, yesterday came suddenly There's a bit Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out My solution is plush care PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I really found funny in the songwriting secrets of the Beatles, where it has that kind of thing which is a bit like Revolution in the Head, where it has very kind of subjective ways of talking about the musicological stuff. You know, there's right, yeah. where there's a bit where he's talking about I'm so tired and he refers to an augmented chord as being like a sleeping tablet. It's <laughs> 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 so good. Mm. I mean, that's, but again, I'm kind of fascinated by the, particularly Ian MacDonald, the mm. way he writes about those subjective things. And, you know, they are chords or they are kind of melodies. And, you know, but like he, he's very good at sort of talking about how they add to the meaning of the lyric. Yeah, I mean, it's supreme self-confidence in, yeah. your, uh, in your analytical writing. Yeah. I mean, I'd really love to read his Shostakovich book. Yeah. I did a lot of Shostakovich in my mm. first year of university, and I've read a lot about him. But, mm. yeah, I'd like to see if he still backs himself mm. <laughs> to the point where he does, um, you know, talking about, especially, like, that early period of Beatles stuff, where, where with George's stuff, he's uh, particularly dismissive. Mm. I'd um, like to read his... I mean, his writings are collected, Ian MacDonald's writings are collected in another book. And I think the last thing he wrote was something about Nick Drake. And mm. I'd really like to read that. Have you read that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I've read the, the Nick mm. Drake essay, I hate to say. It's, oh, right. it's just embarrassing. Oh, really? I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's bad. Really? In my opinion, anyway. I mean, yeah. it's just one person's opinion. But yeah. yeah, I mean, Revolution in the Head's a really interesting book in mm. a lot of ways. I think what's lovely about that book is when you read it, you want to record and you want to yeah. write yeah. songs. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, that, you can't really ask for more than that, can you, for yeah. a mm. book? It, it, mm. it just makes you enthusiastic about going out and creating your own thing. No, And I'm sure he had a bit of a cold sort of slap across the face by by. Paul saying no I wasn't thinking that I mean yeah. it's really really annoys me because I was there and yeah. uh, I, I know it's not true you all might think it's great and it's really <laughs> interesting but it's actually not true and you know mm. um, I think that probably would have gone down quite hard with him you know yeah. you, can Im- you can imagine same as like good old Oasis getting slagged off by George Harrison I'd love to yeah. Yeah, fly yeah. on the wall yeah. and that <laughs> yeah, yeah. pissing myself laughing but um, yeah so I mean what's really interesting to me about that book though is the um, the, the it's a great book, but the, the first bit and the last bit where he's talking about how something died in the soul of Western culture in 1969, mm. and you just think, oh, you old bastard, come yeah. on, yeah. come on. And then you think about it a bit more and think, well, but what if he's right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what yeah. if he's right? What if, like, punk was just, like, the last kick of the, the mm. corpse and uh, the more digital kind of, like, quantized rhythms of dance music can't, can't have that sort of feeling of craft that you get from you know, a warmth that you get from people playing imperfectly in time and stuff. What if he's right about it? And then you start to find reasons why he is right and reasons why he's wrong, you Mm, know? Yeah. And um, I still don't know, but it's a profoundly sort of depressing conclusion to come to, isn't Mm, it? And you can can tell with him, it's clearly about his own nostalgia for the time that he lived through. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, you do just think, what if it was? What if it did? Yeah. There's a really good bit. I was going to just read a little bit of this from... I don't know if you've read the new Sally Rooney book. No. It's, it's really... I thought it was really good. It's had quite mixed reviews. But there's a great bit here about nostalgia. So it's obviously ticking a lot of my boxes. <laughs> <laughs> um, it is hard in these circumstances not to feel that modern living compares poorly 
with the old ways of life, which have come to represent something more substantial, more connected to the essence of the human condition. This, not, this nostalgic impulse is, of course, extremely powerful and has recently been harnessed to great effect by reactionary and fascist political movements. But I'm not convinced that this means the impulse itself is intrinsically fascistic. I think it makes sense that people are looking back wistfully to a time before the natural world started dying, before our shared cultural forms degraded into mass marketing and before our cities and towns became anonymous employment hubs. Basically, <laughs> I, yeah. I I miss the 60s. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I thought that was really good, though, in a, in a way. Yeah, what do you yeah. Think I think it, no, it sums up very well. Yeah, like, sort of but like that, the, the, the great he- allure of the 60s, in a way, is, is that kind of... I mean, you only have to switch on the news to feel... I mean, I'm not saying the 60s was great, but like... Yeah, I, but it really... I mean, it, as you get older, it just becomes harder and harder to kick against yeah you know the inevitability that you will always have your glory days and that yeah. you uh, you know the only other option is to be one of those like slightly tragic like people who's you, you know yeah wandering around masters of the universe listening to records they look far too old to be listening to. <laughs> yeah um but yeah there's a good bit about um when i'm 64 in the in the george martin book which mm. is talks about paul's like about whether that song is sort of a nostalgic thing or mm. whether it's him being prophetic or George Martin's sort of theory of it is that it's a kind of, it's a horror song oh, wow. about the inevitability of yeah. getting old and how like that's just the last thing that they could possibly yeah. imagine, like nothing scarier than the idea of being 64 in the Isle of Wight. Yeah, <laughs> but that's interesting. But there's also. But I mean, that, I suppose it must have been more powerful if you grew up in the sixties because it was yeah. such a cultural explosion for young yeah. people. Yeah. But then I still think like, you know, no one will ever have the same experience as I did seeing like the White Stripes in two thousand one <laughs> <laughs> nowadays or whatever. Yeah. You just, I suppose you don't. I don't know. Maybe it's because we've come out of COVID or whatever. But yeah. people just don't. You don't have sort of linear cultural movements in mm. the same way as you did then because everything's fragmented and, yeah. Yeah. you know it's, maybe it's a sort of post Spotify thing as well yeah, yeah. But that but can very much become a strength I mean look at John Cale or Robert Wyatt mm. Mm. they listen to new music mm. uh, and in, in, integrate it with what they're doing to, to great effect you mm. know mm. I was like I said in the, before my kid went to school I would go down to the playgrounds with him and I would hear what people were playing on their stereos and I knew if I asked them what it was, they'd just tell me to fuck off. <laughs> but, but I would listen to it and, it, I, you know, and it sounded really minimal and it sounded like beats. And I loved the production and I just mm. thought, wow, you know, uh, I really, without being one of those tragic people who tries to go around listening to young people's music, mm. I thought this is really great. You know, mm. like, yeah, yeah. what could I do with this? What, how could I grab that? What could I, you know? And and I think also the, the thing about like oh the sixties is a kind of like homogenous thing where people were still connected to blood and soil or whatever yeah, yeah. Yeah, you want to put it. That's fine as long as you weren't gay or of black yeah, yeah, exactly. or a woman, you yeah. know. Yeah. And and I think that we forget that. I yeah. bet that Peter Jackson he's doing that Let It Be film. He's probably airbrushing out all the cigarette smoke, you know. Yeah. Because yeah. you can imagine going. Well, he's certainly editing rooms. out the Commonwealth songs. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. Like, so, <laughs> you know, there's always there's always kind of like rose tinted spectacles. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that's Sally Rooney's sort of acknowledging that. I think. Yeah. In some ways, because she's saying, you know, it does can lead to this kind of weird eco fascism thing. Um, 
in terms of looking back. But she is also saying that like the world we live in now is not particularly great. So there's no reason yeah. that we look mm. back at this time when it did seem like culture and art really did happily coalesce into something yeah. incredible. Yeah. yeah, it certainly did. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think with art, it's such one of the like big metaphors for art that has always struck me. There's this great painter, English painter called Samuel Palmer. I don't know if you know him. Yeah, he, he he painted in Shore and by Sea, and he was like a he loved William Blake, and he sort of was almost like the first. I'm going to really cheapen it with this because it's a stupid thing to say, no. but he was like the first English psychedelic painter. Right. He was mm. he was painting like blossoms and he was painting hedgerows and the moon and the ploughed field in a spiritual way. Mm. It was like the land was singing back to him, you know, uh, and he had this like ecstatic vision of the land and, and the, the English landscape. Mm. Um, and then he lost it and he just went to being a Victorian academic painter. But for a little while, he was just this inspired character. Mm. So he painted this beautiful, these beautiful paintings of Shore and by Sea and the, and the, the hedges and whatnot. Mm. And I remember reading like a book. It must have been like a left-wing tract or something where it said, you know, and while he was painting those paintings, something like 18 people froze to death in those hedges because they had no homes. They, were, they, they worked, they were labourers, hot pickers, but they froze to death because they had nowhere to go. And you just think, is it... Yeah, it's that old, that old question. Is it worth it, really? Yeah. How can I get... How can I just think this is this beautiful, ecstatic vision of the sacred land when I know that other people are just mm. are dying? Like, mm. not just a few, but they're dying. They're, they're dying in this, you know, ignoble, sort of uh, um, awful way. Yeah. And he's painting and he's completely unaware of it, mm. you know. Mm. I don't know how, what, how this reacts, uh, uh, relates to the Beatles. No. <laughs> no. But, no. Uh, but it's about aesthetics, really, isn't yeah. it? You know? yeah, yeah. I mean, again, that's something. I mean, the, the Rooney novel deals with is like, how do we? You know, she talks about going into a, a shop and just getting a meal deal, <laughs> and just feeling this almost like incredible weight of the consumer capitalist world we live in, and like the people who've suffered and died to just so you can buy a sandwich. <laughs> you know, and it's yeah, yeah but it's. Like, yeah, I don't know how to get this back to the Beatles either. No, but I mean, there's a point there in that the people's sort of view of the 60s is very much you've picked the bits that yeah, you want course. to remember. Yeah, you know? of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, so no, yeah, as you say, an enormous amount of progress has been made sort of mm. culturally and politically, even though it seems like we're living in the sort of end of days. Mm. Yeah, I'm sure there, there are plenty of fucking horrible things about mm. living. You know, you only have to sort of think about what you know what most people in sort of in Liverpool's life was like yeah, in that yeah, time you know yeah. it wasn't all sort of yeah. happy working class parties around a piano yeah you know, it was yeah, yeah, the yeah. death of the industry and all yeah, of that you yeah, know yeah. well I can I can connect it together uh, for you is the end of deference it wasn't it they they stopped that it came with their generation that they weren't deferent anymore yeah. and nobody is deferent now everybody mm. has their own voice and so it seems like chaos but at least everybody does have a voice now yeah. you know mm. yeah feel the influence of the Beatles in kind of the, your songwriting do, do you kind of like feel, do, are there any songs you think are kind of beatily or are there any kind of tricks from the songwriting book that you do or anything like that <laughs> you know like I tend to try and shut the Beatles out of my life it's a bit funny to say that coming mm. onto a Beatles podcast but, <laughs> but I find them overwhelming I find them intimidating 
and at times they they crush you as a songwriter. You yeah, know? and mm. le- even if you think, oh, right, you know, whatever, mm. uh, all together now, I could have written that, or, <laughs> or I could have written, I could have written a George song or whatever. But mm. the fact of how successful they were crushes you, mm. you know. Um, and the fact, I don't know, the fact that they did it first crushes you. So for me, what I try and do really is just shut them out if I can. Mm. Um, and so the la- the last few songs paradoxically enough that i've been writing have got they sound quite beatly some of them they've got mm. they've got a few of the little tricks from songwriting secrets in them mm. yeah. ladies and gentlemen so it's worth reading that book if you, <laughs> want, if you ever want to put in a tasty pedal note or diminished seventh chord but um uh, a lot of the other songs don't there's some songs that are more atonal they're written for string quartet there's some dub bass songs mm. i'm just really trying to get away from the bloody beatles because mm. You know, there's more to there's more to life than the Beatles. I know, lads, you're not going to want to hear this, but there's more, there's more to life than the Beatles. There's yeah. a lot of really good music that exists yeah. on terms completely separate from the terms of the Beatles' music, yeah, yeah, yeah. and and I like it and I understand it and it come and it gets me in the same spiritual place that the Beatles' music does. So I've tried to both move away from it and embrace it at the mm, same time yeah. on this record. So yeah. you could say it's a bit like the White Album. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Well, that's that's yeah. really good, isn't it? I think, yeah. I think I that's think... a very, I mean, that sounds like an incredibly healthy attitude. Because yeah. mm. what's the point in comparing yourself to something that's completely, like, unimpeachable? Mm. <laughs> but you have to. I mean, otherwise, yeah. why, you know, you have to compare yourself. Even if you always fail, you have to compare yourself. Because yeah. that's mm. the benchmark. There's no point doing it if... I mean, like, obviously, you can't say, well, I'd like my generation to completely buy into the music of the clientele in such a way that we become a worldwide phenomenon. <laughs> you know, like, that's just, yeah, yeah. it's clearly laughable, right? But yeah. at the same, so you don't have that, but then you say, I want to have the same excellence, I want to have the same integrity yeah. and inventiveness yeah. and truth to my own vision that yeah. the Beatles had. Um, and so that's the bar that you can pay yourself to, and you mm. still fail, but... You know, you have to just keep trying. Yeah. You know? But I think that's, you know, if you are a big Beatles fan and you're a musician, then hopefully you're taking something from more what they were doing at the time. Like, as in, you want to be like McCartney in 66, like investigating all this stuff and soaking it up, you know, rather than just slavishly kind of copying chord progressions or ripping off tunes or something of course you know? yeah the spirit of the it, spirit yeah. of it and yeah. not so much McCartney in 84 though perhaps yeah. <laughs> yeah um you know he's still got that now like, yeah totally. st- you know that never you know there are a few mi- missteps in 1984 but yeah yeah you get the feeling that that's that's hunger for mm. you know whatever the next best thing that excites you yeah yeah he's never rested on his laurels for better or worse but it's funny there's in the in the 90s like at the height of all that kind of you know post-anthology oasis stuff i remember like someone saying about orbitals album insides you know this is what the beatles would sound like if they were around today kind of thing i i sort of i mean it's a bit of a kind of rubbish journalistic thing to say Mm. maybe but it's like i do kind of get that i do like that do you know what i mean yeah i mean i'm not sure i agree <laughs> really insides is amazing yeah, I mean, that's a it's a great record but anyone, it's a flawed so. piece of rhetoric probably yeah 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 but yeah 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 the, the inventiveness you know mm. the, the the approach yeah i at that time i was working at um a book publisher who did linda's recipe books oh, right. i didn't work on them myself i'm sad to say mm-hmm. but 
um, there was a party for the launch of one of them and mm. everybody was lining up and Linda came in oh, wow. and guess who came in after her oh. saying to everybody, oh, hi, I'm the husband. Oh, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> really nice. Yeah. yeah, really nice guy. That's the last name I'm going to drop. Oh, this, no, this that's interview. A, well, that's, yeah, that's <laughs> a good one to yeah. drop. Yeah. <laughs> Jeff Emmerich and Paul. Yeah. yeah, Jeff Emmerich and Paul, yeah. yeah. I'll start claiming I met John when I was five in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Send me home. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. One question we ask everyone on the podcast is, uh, do you have a controversial Beatles opinion? I've only listened to the White Album or Abbey Road about three times. Really? And I, and I don't like either of them very much. Wow. Really? Yeah, I've only used the Beatles. I've only listened to the Beatles for what I could use. Mm. I've never listened to the Beatles actually as a fan. Right. Right. I love them, but but like I've listened to their records and thought I can't use that and never listened to them since. <laughs> so I only know about half the Beatles discography well. Wow. Mm. But what is it about those two particular records that doesn't click with you? A bit too clean. I think with Abbey Road, it's the uh, the transistor desk they used mm. rather yeah. than the valve desk. And I'm glad they split up at that point because mm. I think they mm. made some really shit music after that. <laughs> <laughs> and the shit sounding music that was shit as yeah, well. Yeah, this is a common point. Yeah, so it's not, that's not controversial. No, no, no it's a common it's, point that we think, um, what, yeah. then what would 70s Beatles sound yeah. like and the seeds like, of it are in that record? There's a really mm. good book, Kenneth Womack, called Solid State, well, about Abbey Road and the end of the Beatles. And it's like amazing the reaction Abbey Road got. Like it was sort of panned because of the way it sounded. Mm. I mean, I... When I was growing up and listening to all of them, I couldn't really... I, kn- I, kn- I sort of, I guess, subconsciously noticed the difference, but I didn't... I think it must have been so pronounced at the time, mm. the way Abbey so Road sounds. So sounds much more modern than anything Yeah, else. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. But I, liked, I quite liked that. Me it made too. it, when I was young, that made it feel yeah. more you know, contemporary or yeah, just yeah. closer. Yeah. Mm. Um, and I think partly because I grew up with yeah, a lot of records that were trying to sound like yeah. that. Yeah, Kenneth. But I like particularly like Ringo's drum sound on it. Me too. Yeah. yeah. Everyone was saying there's too many, too much toms on it. <laughs> so weird. Oh, but like you're, you're picking holes. Yeah. <laughs> Kenneth Womack compares it to the reaction Ulysses got, which is like a bit much. I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So getting a bit operatic with the yeah. comparisons there. Yeah. 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 So I don't know yeah. why album that well either. I obviously know songs like Dear Prudence and stuff, the famous songs from it, but never listened to it all the way through in in order mm. yeah because i just don't really like half the songs well mm. that's what I, I just got for my birthday the um remix album which i've been waiting to get for ages and i absolutely love it and the first time i heard that album i thought this is always how i wanted the white album to sound because really? i don't actually like the way it's recorded that much but i really like what giles martin has done on it mm. But I, kn- I don't listen to it all the way through, which is how I listen to records. You know, I sit down with a glass of yeah. wine and then I want to listen yeah. to a whole record. Mm. And I just find with that, with the White Album, I just, there's too much stuff that I want to skip. Um, mm. And Robin is shaking his head <laughs> in disbelief. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, it's not even cl- It's in the bottom half of my favourite Beatles albums. That's insane. Interesting, yeah. 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 Insane. Well, yeah. I like it to be a complete, you know, piece of... Mm. Oh, you know, I want all killer, no filler, and there's a lot of filler. Just have a bit of patience. Yeah, yeah but I know them all so intimately. Like, yeah. I don't need to listen to. I probably listen to songs I don't like on that record more than I've listened to lots of other songs that I do like just because they're on it. Does that yeah. was that a coherent sentence? Yeah, but it's just weird. I like. Honey I, I've Pie. heard piggies more than yeah. you know certain tracks on 
Astral Weeks or mm. whatever my other some of my other favorite albums ever, yeah. just because it's on that record and I resent <laughs> the fact that I listen to it so much. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we should do another podcast about our resentment of the Beatles. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that series three. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Overrated, the Beatles story. So is that is your controversial opinion that you're not a fan of? Those the white album and it's not really that controversial. Is it? I, mean, I think I think my, in these in this realm it's quite uh, my controversial opinion is that I resent the Beatles. Yeah, right. I, I yeah, resent yeah. them. I I, I resent them for what they did, and yeah. I resent them for their hold over me. And I wish I didn't have to think about them. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I've not read either of those, Mark. Uh, I think it's just the first one, the Mark Lewis yeah, and biographies. Because yeah. if I did, I'd think about the Beatles all day long. Mm, and yeah. thinking about the Beatles all day long has never helped me in any way, shape or form. Mm. So I resent the fact that they take over my head. <laughs> yeah. You talk about listening to music because you can't, you can't get anything from it, what you said about the White Album. Is that, so do you listen to music because you think I could this will influence me in this way or that way? Or yeah, I mean, that's one of the curses, I think, is that you, you listen to music and you say, well, what can I do with that? Is that going to be helpful to me or unhelpful to me? And um, you stop really enjoying things because mm. it's more about, like, how can I use that, you yeah. know? Um, yeah. uh, I'd like to get back to that more innocent way of listening to music, mm. but I don't have it at the moment. It's just constant bloody calculation, constant thinking, oh, what can I do? Can I take that? Oh, that's interesting. You yeah. Know? Mm. And, um, yeah, it's a bit, it gets a bit exhausting. Yeah. yeah. That was Alistair McLean's own personal Beatles. What a show. It was fantastic, yeah. Such a fascinating guy. As we said, we could have talked for hours and hours and mm. um, really was so illuminating, especially when talking about his, uh, you know, first collision with those Beatles songs and Strawberry Fields. And, you know, it's the gift that keeps on giving in terms of podcast chat, that song, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> going to exhaust it. Totally. But then as well, you know, the way he's talking about twist and shout. Yeah, and this idea yeah. of sort of seeing the world in colour for the first time, you know, it was quite a lovely kind of goosebumps moment, I found. It was great. Yeah, absolutely amazing. Exactly what this podcast is all about. So yeah. uh, cheers and uh, for coming down, Alistair. Um, it was a pleasure to have you. And uh, I'm certainly going to be listening to a lot more clientele in mm. this, uh, you know, it's the perfect weather for it, as we said. Yeah. Autumnal <laughs> band. Yeah, totally. Um so yeah thank you so much for listening if you want to hear an extended version of that podcast you can go to the patreon and uh you can get extended ad free versions of all our episodes as well as bonus ones we had one last week where we watched uh, paul's 1984 film give my regards to broad street uh with al and uh, jono from sheeps which was terrific fun yeah. uh probably the the most laugh out loud podcast we've done, I think. Yeah. Maybe even too much. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, there's also our trip to Abbey Road with Ellis James and our own personal Beatles volume two and another upcoming one with uh, season one guest Johnny White. Mm. Uh, so lots of bang for your buck there on the Patreon. So you can yeah. get to patreon.com slash personal Beatles. But next week, sadly, will be our last episode of the current run. Um, but it's a good one. It's We're going to be chatting to Johnny Lynch. Uh, otherwise known as the Pictish Trail, just fantastic musician about what the Beatles mean to him. But yeah. have no fear, there will we will have this more specials, and we're going to hopefully do a Christmas one. Mm -hmm. And we are also going to see Paul McCartney talking about his new collection of lyrics in November. Yes. So we're going to do a kind of uh, catch up one after that as well. Yeah, so you won't you won't be seeing the last of us in twenty twenty one just yet. Yeah. Um, but for now, thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next Tuesday. Keep on beatling. <laughs> <laughs>
Keep beetling on. Keep beetling on. Sorry, I forgot our catchphrase. We've only got one episode left. Yeah. I keep getting the catchphrase wrong. It doesn't matter. All right. Keep beetling on. Keep beetling on. Your Own Personal Beatles is presented by Jack Pelling and Robin Allender. The podcast artwork is done by Morgan Ritchie. It's produced by me, Jack Pelling, and is a Homespun Sounds production. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.